0: the Residents and Fellows Audio Corner. My name is Lessa Matthews. I'm a neuroanesthesiologist and Division Chief of Neuroanesthesiology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. On behalf of the Education Committee of the Society of Neuroanesthesia and Critical Care, let let us extend a warm welcome to Dr. Alexander Papangelou, who will be talking to us today about anesthetic consideration for a craniotomy, Part 1. Dr. Alex Papandjoulou is an associate professor in the Department of Anesthesiology at Emory University Hospital. He completed his medical training at the University of Miami School of Medicine. He subsequently trained in neurology at the University of Maryland and anesthesiology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Papandjoulou continued his training as a fellow in neuroanesthesiology and neurocritical care at Johns Hopkins. Alex is a passionate educator and was awarded Subspecialty Teacher of the Year in 2017. He currently sits on the Neuroanesthesiology Committee and the Educational Track Subcommittee on Neuroanesthesia for the AASA. He's one of the leads for the Neuroanesthesia Classroom Effort through the Trainee Engagement Committee of SNAC. Dr. Papangelo is also actively involved in research in addition to his teaching and clinical care commitments. His current research efforts involve post-craniotomy pain, scalp blockade, and post-operative delirium. Alex, welcome.
1: Letha, thanks for the introduction.
0: Of course. It's our pleasure. Let's um, start talking about anesthesia for craniotomy. Sure. What are the preoperative considerations one should focus on while planning management of anesthesia for craniotomy?
1: Well, um, there are a lot of considerations. One must first think about the lesion location, supratentorial versus infratentorial. I often look at the scan just to take a a visual of where the lesion is and um, how things look. Of course, the lesion location will impact uh, surgical positioning and potential complications. The degree of lesion enhancement, of course, is indicative of blood supply, and that may correspond to interopter blood loss. If the lesion involves vascular structures, such as branches off the circle of Willis or the venous sinuses, um, that must be identified. Invasion into a venous sinus, such as a superior sagittal sinus, increases the risk for intraoperative venous air embolism. The amount of cerebral edema with resulting shift and compression of structures, such as the midbrain, would not only lead to presenting symptoms, but offer insight into what post-operative complications may be encountered.
0: Excellent, yeah. You've touched on some of the very important considerations we talk about when we talk to a resident, right? So, um, one of the concerns uh, we have when we talk about a craniotomy is, what does, do this, does the patient have increased signs of, um, and symptoms of increased ICP? So, what do you specifically look for uh, to detect the patient has increased ICP?
1: Well, I actually find it to be a difficult question. Um, Of course, there there are historical signs of elevated ICP. Um, Those can include headaches that that progress. They can include headaches that are worse when lying flat or in the morning when you wake up. Patients can present with nausea, vomiting, visual changes, blurring, loss of vision, and they can actually get progressively lethargic. There aren't necessarily focal neurologic deficits. If a mass lesion becomes substantially large and develops a lot of cerebral edema, this can lead to a, a, what do we call a, what I call a critical volume. If you refer to the Monroe Kelly doctrine, the intracranial components can accommodate up to a certain point by changing another components, such as as the brain volume gets bigger the amount of TSF in, in the head can actually get less. However, once it gets to critical size that that doctrine fails and ICP would actually elevate very quickly. So a mass can cause deficits but when you don't have a mass it'll it'll there be non focal neuro exam um there is something called a there is a false localizing sign if you go back to medical school compression of uh, so, sort of when the brain um compresses down on the on the basilar part of the skull you can actually um lesion the six nerves and you can get bilateral six nerve palsy which is double vision or lateral gaze
0: right right. And you could also look for some of the imaging findings, right? If there's midline shift and or there's and stuff like that, right?
1: Of course. Um, yeah. And and yeah, the the problem is you don't have a number, you know. When when right. you're looking at right. the brain, you, you don't know exactly what ICP is. However, yeah, as as when you see things like significant midline shift oftentimes more than one centimeter should be problematic as it could start compressing on the on the uh. HCA on the contralateral side if you see the midbrain being indented um. yeah those are all all bad signs and the potential that elevation that ICP is elevated
0: that's right that's right okay let's move on to um. preoperative medications Multimodal analgesic administration is in vogue now. Would you consider any particular preoperative medication before a craniotomy?
1: Uh, well, thanks. That's actually kind of an, an what I think is an in vogue question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if we start with acetaminophen, um, most of the studies that I've looked at, and there there seem to be more popping up all the time, but... They looked at acetaminophen given intraoperatively um, and then continued every six hours post-op. It seems that overall investigators, some have found a modest effect. It seems to be inconsistent, but the incidence of severe post-op pain is less and patient satisfaction in one study was actually better. A recent study in moya patients demonstrated actually no effect on IV acetaminophen, which was first administered right right after intubation. So I, I think if there is effect, it's modest and perhaps it might maybe present when in combination with other other um, um, drugs. But things like gabapentinoids, um, it's a it's a very intriguing class for me uh, for craniotomy. To summarize that data, there, there really is actually data that support pregabalin and gabapentin use preoperatively, particularly um, with pregabalin if it started the night before surgery and continued postoperatively for several days. Uh, what has been found is that the, the use of gabapentinoids can reduce post-op pain and potentially have a positive effect on opioid consumption. Of course there is an antiemetic effect but there's a drawback and that's the potential for increased sedation. Unfortunately increased sedation is a big concern after crani- craniotomy it, it goes against neuroanesthesia anesthesia in general. And if the if an anesthesiologist chooses to use pre, uh, preoperative gabapentinoids really you need to be mindful of the other sedating classes of medications that you're using during the course of the anesthetic. I um I have not seen data on preoperative celecoxib. You could argue that it's a potentially good agent. Um, It doesn't have any uh, platelet inhibitory activity, but there's not much data. I I just haven't seen it. Um, Traditional NSAIDs, everywhere that I've ever worked, they're avoided for craniotomy,
0: um,
1: and that's simply due to potential platelet inhibition. But if right. you if you do dig around, you will find some data supporting the use of of um, uh, things like ketorolac. Um, There's data in pediatrics, um, but I I just haven't seen it used.
0: Yeah, it's a very um, difficult you know group of drugs to come to any kind of consensus on, right? Um, I you know as after a craniotomy, we expect a quick wake up and good neurologic exam almost immediately after the surgery. And so I do think that, um, you know, it does increase your chance of sedation postoperatively. So the use of gabapentinoids is in our practice is kind of limited because of that, but well, we do use oral trial and But, yeah, I think that was pretty, uh, you know, it's consistent with what we practice here as well. Talk a little bit about positioning, Alex, because that is a major part of what we do, and it takes quite a lot of planning and um, and takes, Time to uh, avoid, uh, you know, to to position a patient correctly so as to avoid any kind of position-related injuries. What are the common surgical positions used during craniotomy, and what is the role of an anesthesiologist in positioning?
1: Sure. Um, Well, the most common positions, of course, are are supine and prone. Um, On occasion, you'll get a lateral positioning, and the the biggest thing that's that changes between these positions is, is the amount of head rotation and flexion, and that's something that we really need to pay attention to um There are other positions such as this the all famous sitting position and um something called park bench. I've also heard that termed um three quarter prone um, right. mm-hmm. all these positions are they're really chosen to optimize surgical exposure so you know the, it it is our responsibility we have the same responsibility for safe positioning so really you need to work with your nurse surgeon to to get the patient um, positioned safely um you need to look at things like um the amount of space between the chin and the chest wall uh when the when the patient is flexed and uh, similarly the chin and, and the clavicle when there's head rotation so there are a lot of things to uh to consider
0: Absolutely. I I think when we give patients muscle relaxants, we can easily put them in positions that an awake patient would not tolerate, right? So if we have to be particularly um, mindful of that. And I always tell our residents that, you know, we become the patient advocates when the surgeon's main focus is get adequate surgical exposure. So yeah, I think we have to become their patient advocates when it comes to the placing them in positions that the normal body contours won't allow us to do that, right?
1: Absolutely. And I I really do like um, seeing range of motion, the natural range of motion that the patient has in pre-op. and That gives me a good idea of um, how much I can allow in trial.
0: Right, right. And then some of these, uh, you know, we need to keep in mind that some of these surgeries are very long, um, and they can be in that position for extended periods of time, anywhere from, six to 18 hours, especially when you're doing a, in a large acoustic neurom or something like that. So we really have yeah. to be mindful of the time a patient is going to be in that position. So we actually do put some extra padding, like um, the foam padding on the surface of the body surface that is in contact with the table. Um, so, you know, when they wake up, they don't have, you know, skin ulceration and stuff like that. So that we found that, that seems to have helped quite a bit in reducing pressure ulcers, actually.
1: Absolutely. So, great yeah. idea. So,
0: yeah, um, that has really helped us, um, you know, in quite a bit. Um, also, um, let's when you talk about anesthetic management, um, what are the goals for anesthesia management for a patient with large intracranial mass? Do you have any particular monitors that are standard monitors that are used um, for the... These these kind of big cases. Yeah. So
1: really, if as we touched on before, if the mass is large enough, where I am concerned that that intracranial pressure is altered, if it's elevated, or if there is a, a really significant herniation syndrome, I do use TIVA techniques to to maintain whatever autoregulation may remain. Unfortunately, we we never know. To what degree autoregulation's intact in some patients with brain injury, but I, I do like using TIVA just uh, just to maximize what we do have. I do place arterial lines to allow beat-to-beat blood pressure monitoring. Um, that way, we can know what CPP is at all times. Again, as as mentioned earlier, if you don't have an intracranial pressure monitor, well, how do you know what the ICP is, and how can you measure CPP? So I, I've gone in the habit of, of making some certain assumptions on intracranial pressure. pressure. Right. On occasion, I will talk to the neurosurgeon to get his opinion on, on where ICP might be. And, you know, re- referring back to your question about monitoring uh, with SEDLINE or, or BIS or uh, really any process EEG, I'm more and more using the process EEG and, uh, whenever possible. Um, and I Think for me if I'm using TIVA, I really do want to have a measure of your end organ. I mean, we're we're um, we're anesthetizing the brain, and you know, I'm I'm a believer that I'll give you a lot of information. Unfortunately, um, during craniotomy, placement of, of some of these monitors is particularly difficult, um, just because of the pin site and and uh, depending on where the actual incision is. So I, I've had a hard time with that. There are some institutions use techniques to um to alter the positioning a little bit. That um but that that's something beyond what I want to talk about now. So yeah, I, I think this deadline or process EEG is a, a great um technique to use.
0: Yeah, I, I I totally, I completely agree with you, especially when we have no way of monitoring the depth of anesthesia when we're using, you know, t- total intravenous anesthesia, I feel like this is one more, uh, you know, the process EEG monitors gives me one uh, one more tool that helps me make some decisions. And obviously they're not the be-all or end-all. We just use it as one more um, tool, right? And I agree with you about the positioning of those, um, the the, st- <laughs> the set line stickers, and, and sometimes I've kind of, I have to tell the residents wait till um, wait till the patient is pinned and positioned, and then try and place it, you know, where the exactly where yeah where it'll go the best. All right, exactly. let's move on yeah. to um, you mentioned uh, total intravenous anesthesia. Can you comment on the advantages of total intravenous anesthesia versus balanced anesthesia with inhalational, ana- inhalational agents for maintenance of anesthesia?
1: Of course. Um, So you have to go back to the concept of uh, TMRO2 and cerebral blood flow coupling. And this concept is very important in neurosurgery. And I'm sure all the residents know that IV anesthetics, uh, such as propofol tomidate, and thiopentol, uh, do maintain coupling, which which means as you increase the dose, um, the brain's metabolic activity will drop and blood flow will stay coupled, and blood flow will similarly drop in parallel. Really, I, you know, if you extend the discussion a little bit and, and um, talk about another IV anesthetic like ketamine, I I want to tell you, I, I think that's beyond the scope of what we should talk about today, but
0: I, agree. I do tell the agree.
1: residents, uh, yeah, I mean, for the purposes of test-taking, I, I think a lot of the older questions say that, blood flow and CMRO two both increase um and auto regulation auto regulation remains intact with ketamine. I don't think the evidence really supports that, but um if for those that really want to dig into the details, there's a nice review article by Zeiler et al. in in twenty sixteen that you could take a look at. Yeah. Vapors, on the other hand, do decrease blood flow and CMRO two, but at some point there is decoupling where cerebral blood flow starts to increase. That point is different for every vapor, and if you refer to a textbook, um, it's felt to be about one MAC for cerebral fluorine. I'm personally comfortable with any vapor up to about a half a MAC. At times, I'll use a little bit of of vapor during more complex nerve surgery in addition to an IV anesthetic.
0: I agree. I think, you know, the... And and like you said, different vapors have different properties, but in general, I also tend to stick to half a MAC of inhalational agent when we uh, combine it with um, uh, IV anesthetic. Do you commonly use any other adjuvants such as dexmedetomidine, lidocaine, or narcotic infusion?
1: Sure. Um, I, I think we're all biased by where we trained
0: and uh, yeah,
1: of course, <laughs> you know I, when when I review the literature, I I, I think that I, I tend to I do use narcotics, but I generally use shorter acting things, and I use uh, fentanyl boluses instead of infusions. I avoid long acting agents such as hydromorphone. If I had my choice in a perfect world, I would use fentanyl, But really, I I only use it for intracranial procedures, when I have a good scalp lock. Um, I, I think it's actually kind of cruel to wake up somebody coming off of remifentanil without any significant opioid um, um, level in the blood. So I, I expect it with a block that a patient will wake up with reasonable analgesia after the remifentanil has metabolized. I have become very fond of dexametatomidine and I'm using it more and more often. It, it's great. I mean, it, it's one of the components of an opioid-free craniotomy technique that that um, I'm testing. Um, uh, we have a manuscript in process. Um, I have not used a lidocaine infusion for craniotomy for several reasons. I get asked about that a lot, but I um, I haven't seen. A Uh, much compelling evidence to support its use. I I haven't looked in the literature for about a year, but at the last time, there there really wasn't much. I am, of course, concerned when you combine um, IV lidocaine with a scalp block. Also, once the lidocaine level reaches a certain point, um, the seizure threshold actually is reduced, and that could be dangerous during a craniotomy. There again, there are no absolutes and this is sorta of my current thought process. I will say during transphenoidal hypothesctomies, I, I I think those are different. I do tend to like smoother emergences with a more sedated patient.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think um when you especially uh when you're using scalp blockade, you have to consider your total dose of lidocaine or any um Local anaesthetic agent that you're using to consider toxicity right so but yeah, I agree. I think um, dexmedetomidin, um scalp blocks, all that help with a uh, smoother wake up and a you know more comfortable patient when you especially when you're using Remy. let's move on to helping the our surgical colleagues and so what do you usually use to decrease brain bulk and brain tension to help help with the um, surgical
1: resection. Sure. Um, I, I think the quickest way for any of us to reduce brain bolts is actually by hyperventilating a patient. If you ever walk by a neuro ICU and, and someone is, happens to be herniating, you'll see the, the provider at the head of the bed quickly ventilating somebody to try to bring down CO2. I, I target intraoperatively end title of about 25 to 30 uh, you know, be mindful that the PaCO2 will be a bit higher. And I, I do find that to be helpful for surgical bulk. I, In addition to hyperventilation, we, you can administer mannitol or hypertonic saline. Um, mannitol seems to be a, the pre- preferred agent intraoperatively because it could be given uh, through peripheral IV. I, I do feel it has increased risk compared to hypertonic saline. Uh Manitol can cause hypotension, hypovol uh, hypo, I'm sorry, hypotension, volume overload. Um you can go into outright congestive heart failure and unfortunately it can cause acute renal failure. You can also get a, a hyper responder to manitol. There are those patients that you give manitol to and you know they urinate um liters of, of uh of um of output. So patients can get again, volume depleted and hypotensive. It really is up to us to maintain volume status and to try to keep patients euvolemic. I right. do not administer... The goal administer is euvolemia,
0: it. right?
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and there is there is neurocritical care data that supports that. I do not administer furosemide as a standalone. There is data that says it can reduce ICP brain bulk a little bit, but it's very modest. I will use it to augment a bad response to mannitol, or I'm sorry, an inadequate one. Now, changing over to hypertonic saline, I think the biggest problem with hypertonic saline is that it needs to be administered. The higher tonicity uh, fluids need to be administered centrally. We,
0: right.
1: I think, it's safe to use for sure up to 2% peripherally. Um, some institutions will allow 3%.
0: Yeah, we sometimes do three percent, provided we have a large, like a 16 gauge or higher, um, IV uh, in a good exactly. uh, location. Yeah.
1: Exactly. The thing is, to really get a a good reduction in brain bulk, you need to administer hypertonic saline. You know, fairly fairly quickly. It, it, you can't drip it in. So it you know central access is the best way to do it. And I think ultimately that's why we as a group tend to use mannitol. If you take a look at, at onset of action, mannitol is a little bit slower than hypertonic saline. If you were to give hypertonics, let's say, high tenicity, like 23.4%, you'll get peak action in about 20 minutes, uh, while mannitol takes about 25 minutes. The other thing about mannitol is understand that some of it can cross back into the brain. It's not completely impermeable, so there's an increased risk of rebound re edema.
0: Emergence from general anesthesia after craniotomy is a very critical period. And what are the some of the concerns that you have during this time, and how do you manage emergence in your practice?
1: You know, I think we need to control some simple things. Um, you got to remember that brain surgery has just occurred, and in essence, there's been some some injury to the brain. So, um, I believe treating hypertension when the blood pressure gets pretty uh, elevated is really good practice um, in potentially reducing the risk of, of post-op intracranial hemorrhage and hematoma formation. You know, af- after reasonably excluding pain, it's my practice to use nitroprine. I, I do, I do understand that it can cause cerebral vasodilation, but it's relatively short-acting, um, and and fairly effective. Some of my colleagues use esmolol. I I don't find it to be as good of a blood pressure medication as as everyone knows, and there's some data to support labetalol as well. Um, I'll tend to start the treat after the uh, as a systolist to about 160. That's sort of my cutoff. The other the the slow to wake up. Delayed emergence part of neurosurgery is very important, and that that's sort of that that's the reason, that's the crux of why we as a group try to avoid long-acting agents and things that that sedate patients, such as midazolam, uh, Neurontin, as we mentioned earlier. So there are additional considerations for neurosurgery. Those include things like stroke. Patients can, for instance, have um, an aneurysm clip, and if the clip is placed poorly, you can get ischemia from that. A, poor, a, a clip can also induce vasospasm, as sometimes surgeons need to ligate a, a venous sinus, in which case you can get a venous infarct. And, of course, there could be intracranial hemorrhages or, or massive cerebral edema. I've seen at times uh, substantial pneumocephalus um, really slow down emergence and the patient needed to stay intubated. And, you know, finally, there is a risk of emergence seizures. On, on multiple occasions, I've found patients in nonconvulsive convulsive stratus epilepticus. When I place this deadline on and I, I take a look at the EEG, it's quite remarkable. So I think that's yeah. an underappreciated cause of delayed emergence. So... You know, if if that's the case, if you have delayed emergency, you really have to maintain the airway and and go to head seating.
0: That's right. I think that's, yeah, especially if the patients have had a history of seizures preoperatively, that is something we need to really keep in mind, right? So, um, of I agree. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the things I always tell our uh, trainees as well we are transporting patients, they could be having seizures and be prepared to treat, have something in your pocket to treat that. And you know, manage the airway. So which is something that's easily and readily accessible to you. Good. Excellent. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alex. I think uh, that was a pretty comprehensive review. We would like I'm sure this topic can take us several hours if you choose to but because of our <laughs> time constraints I think I'm going to stop here. Thank you so much for taking time to um do this for our residents and fellows. I appreciate it. It was
1: my Have pleasure. A good evening, I enjoyed it. Alex. Thank
0: you. Yeah.